perhaps we could start by asking you about your interest in the First World War, which um, clearly is, is evident in your TV shows and in your books, and why you first became interested in that particular period. I've been interested in the First World War. I mean, haunted might be a better word for all my adult life. Uh, and I first went out to Ypres uh, and stood on the Dominion Gate at 8 o'clock in the evening where they play the last post every night um, when I was in my teens. And I was closer to Passchendaele when I did that than I am now to D-Day in terms of history. And many of the people who stood under the Dominion Gate then were wearing Pipsqueak and Wilfred, the three First World War medals. And, and, it, and it was kind of something that I could touch. It, it was a, a, a world event which hadn't yet quite become history because I could talk to lots of people who'd been involved in it. And in my lifetime, it, it's become history. Uh, and the, you know, the last Poilu died very recently. We will lose the last of the Tommies very soon. And suddenly it will have slipped away. And I'm kind of conscious of being at that historical hinge where a war which has intensely interested me has gone from being something within human recall to being outside human recall. And what triggered that first visit to Ypres? Was it anything to do with your family or was it just um, an accident that you were there? My family's got no particular military connection. Now, the male members of it have got swept into the armed forces in world wars as almost anybody's might have done, but I'm not, they've never been professional soldiers. They've usually been pretty glad to get their uniform off at the end of it. But, but I always felt a fascination with the war that went beyond the wholly logical. And, 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 and this is one of those worrying cliches which professional historians probably shouldn't use, but it, it, it's always seemed to me that the First World War is, in one sense, a set of iron gates separating the present from the past. And for me, it had a strange poignancy. It was the, the end of a particular world which, despite its horrors and its injustices, had a sense of pride and confidence. And I think it was the beginning of a world where Britain in particular had, had lost that sense of purpose. And I, and I was always attracted by, by those lights and shades. Um, and I find the memorial at Fiefau, um shocking. Got the names of around 74,000 of our countrymen who had no known graves, who were killed on the Somme. Just the Somme. Other bits of the front have their own memorials. And I always feel in the presence of that huge, great, big, raw-boned, windswept memorial, I feel in the presence of a complete social cross-section of, of, of my country. I always run my fingers when I'm there over the, the name of a chap called George Butterworth, who was an Oxford man, uh, an officer of the Downlight Infantry, he, he, a very talented musician, he got a military cross and had he lived he would have got another. And I think of his music, Butterworth's wonderful music, Banks of Green Willow, and whenever I make a, a film of the song, and I'm forever getting drawn back there, I can't help juxtaposing that, that lyrical rise and fall of George Butterworth's music to that, to that landscape imbued with so much sorrow. So in a way, Thiepfile says it all, and George Butterworth's name, which I can feel under my fingers as I speak, says so much to me personally. So it is a very personal experience. The, the experience of the Western Front 
is, has always been personal. The older I get, the more personal it becomes. When I first went there, I was younger than almost anybody uh, lying in a cemetery there. Now I'm older than almost anybody. There's a one infantry officer at least who's older than me, but actually most of them are younger than me. And, and as my own children have grown up, in, in a shocking way, they have now, although they're in their late 20s, they are now older than many of the soldiers buried in those cemeteries. In other words, my own children have had a chance denied to so many people who found the First World War. Now, of course, there is infinitely more to the war than looking at cemeteries, than that sense of ineluctable poignancy that you get from them. But it's something which I, I wouldn't dream of disguising for a moment has always been hugely important as far as I, Richard Holmes, am concerned. Okay. And in your programmes and in your books, you, you've covered all the range from early medieval up to modern warfare, but do you find yourself like Vernon Scannell just coming back to the First World War? Does it just drag you back like a, a magnet? I keep coming back to the First World War and I keep promising myself that I won't. When I finish my book, Tommy, um, I, I promised myself that, that would be it. And my wife, who knows me well, predicted when I started Tommy, she said, you know, this is going to make you unhappy, and it'll make you unhappy, it'll make us all unhappy. Um, get the wretched thing over as quickly as you can. And, and I did, and, and there were always moments, and one of the great pleasures of being a historian is going to an archive, and it's, a, it's an excitement that never, ever pulls, where you pull the top off one of those brown, heavy archive boxes, and it comes off with almost a hiss, because it fits so tightly over the body, you pull it off and there you have um, lots of documents. And I, I did one in particular where, where I very quickly found a letter from the commanding officer of the chap concerned saying that, you know, he was a brave young man, he walked back onto the position after the Germans had occupied it. And I remember sitting there with tears running down my face thinking, ah, you know, this is so rotten, I, I can't believe this. And I now know so much about this man. I, He'd come back from Argentina, he'd signed on, he'd got commissioned, he'd got a military cross, you know, and completely pointlessly runs back with his revolver trying to alter the fortune of a lost battle. And it, it went straight to my heart. Actually, as luck would have it, um, two, two papers down, there was then a letter from him saying, um, Dear Mum, I ran back onto the position, I, I missed the Germans with my revolver. Very sportingly, they took me prisoner. So, so actually, that, ha that story had a happy ending. But, but sadly, they, they usually don't. They usually don't. And, and that always upsets me. So I, I promise never to do it again. And then, for reasons I can't properly explain, I get drawn back. Mm. So the unhappiness comes from the tragedy and the pity of, of the individual experience in the war. Yes. And, and you can't... I mean, as, I, as I've gone on as a historian... I can't anymore write arrows on maps history. I mean, I can't do battles in the way that I once might have done. With a, you know, you get a reasonable grip on the sources, you understand the ground, and you write operational military history. I mean, operational military history is very important, and a lot of people do it very well. But, but increasingly, I am preoccupied with Lance Corporal Snodgrass. Um, who may not have been changing the fortunes of the day and may not have left much of a mark on history, but who was a man like me. And I am, when I was finishing my, my television series on the Western Front, 
given that we don't usually have much of a script, I mean, normally I, I say the words that strike me at the moment. I think if, you, if you're going to learn a script, you might as well get a professional actor to do it. Um, I remember thinking, how am I going to finish this? And I was standing in a, in a cemetery, and I found myself dropping to my haunches beside the grave of an unknown soldier and saying, he was as good a man as I am. And in a way, that's what I wanted to say at the end of it all, at the end of lots of hard work and six, I hope, good programmes, and I certainly gave them everything I'd got. But at the end of it all, I simply wanted to say that, that across what's now 90 years of history, they were just like us. They were just like us, but they lived some time ago. And they felt all the emotions that you and I do. And the thing I admire most about that generation is the way that it endured. It was an enduring generation. My grandfather's generation put up with things, and sometimes, when I'm working on the first floor, I wish they hadn't. You know, and, and that's part of it. But they, they endured, and they endured often with humour, often with very dark humour, but they put up with it. And, and I do sometimes wonder what they'd have made of us. I, I think we are... A, a lot less good at enduring than they were. Hmm. But when you read the the testaments and material from that period, do you think there is a, a great deal of difference between their attitudes and ours, or are there commonalities? I think that I think there were commonalities across similar cultures, across the whole of history. I think culture changes, but changes relatively slowly. Um, now, I, I certainly wouldn't make too much of my own military experience, but I. I had the, the privilege as colonel of my regiment to, to see my regular battalions on active service in Iraq. And there were moments when I'd be in the back of a warrior armoured vehicle or talking to the boys as they were having a slurp of water and a crafty fag, trying to find some shelter from the sun on another blazing Iraqi day. A, a lot of them was more ancient than modern. I, I couldn't help feeling a profound sense that, that they were, they had more in common with the men who fought at the Somme or even at Waterloo than they did with anything that was happening in the 21st century. That, that they were plying a trade which was essentially an old-fashioned one and in which what mattered most were old virtues, mateship, and courage and honesty. Now that doesn't mean for a moment I think it's a good idea to have wars because you get those virtues. But if we, if, if we take a, a quote from a, a man of whom I'm particularly fond, David Cooper, who was padre of two power in the Falcons, and David, David's analogy is that war is a dunghill, and on that dunghill you get some remarkably fine flowers growing. And it does seem to me, having seen British soldiers doing the business relatively recently, that that's absolutely true. That, that, that these are people who have virtues which are ancient, who have virtues which it's hard not to admire, however little you appreciate the circumstances in which those virtues are exercised. And the troops that you meet nowadays, they still have that endurance quality, they put up with it, they go through, they battle through, they business as usual. I think, I think that one of, the, um, one of the disturbing things about early 21st century Britain is that because, and in a sense quite properly, I mean I haven't got military values the most puffing thought, but in a sense quite properly we're a demilitarised society. And I think we have no conception at all of what we ask people to do on our behalf. 
Uh, now, some people listening to this will say, yeah, well, this is not in my name. I, I don't want you to do it on, on my behalf. But actually, the boys and increasingly the girls that are doing it are doing it for us. And we have no real understanding of what it's like to be shot at even once. We have little understanding of what it's like to do it day after day after day when it's stinking hot and you're not necessarily terribly well paid and often the, the computer that pays you is broken down where you are aware that, that although your kit's not bad there are moments when you wish there was more of this, that or the other. Um, and I think these are men from, men from an old world and we, and we don't understand them. I, 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 I do regret that understanding that came from a society which had a larger army which knew and it's not about how the army worked I don't think we know the difference these days in civilian society between a brigadier and a bombardier if I was going to say to people what's a military cross I, you know, most of them wouldn't know and, and I, I, my first battalion in Iraq was, was heavily decorated Interally, I got one Victoria Cross, and and one of the great pleasures of my life was seeing the boys after they got their medals, and one of them very proudly got a military cross, lovely purple and white ribbon with a, a silver very plain cross, a very elegant medal, and and his mum said to me, well, you know, what's a military cross? What is it? And I said, I'd, well, it's it's our nation's third highest decoration for gallantry. I'd rather have one of those than a peerage. I would. And she, she blushed and tears welled up and, and she suddenly began to understand what her son might have had to have done to get that. But I think broadly that's a level of understanding we haven't got. We, we see badges of rank and medals and things as costume jewellery. We've got no understanding of why armies have hierarchies, of just how welded together the boys are in the back of a warrior vehicle, how adamantine those bonds of mateship are, and how in a sense, very often, and I think this is probably true across history, certainly true of the First World War, often it's that experience of mateship that makes people feel valued and valuable for the only time in their lives. Now again, it doesn't happen all the time. In the First World War you could get posted into a battalion that you didn't know, that didn't take you seriously, and you could feel a stranger in a strange land. See, it certainly doesn't happen all the time, but when it works, when you feel like a shipwrecked sailor on a raft with people like you, and that's the way that, that people in frontline trenches wrote of themselves, this sense of being, there's, you know, this is the biggest shipwreck you can imagine in the Western Front, and I'm on a raft with a small number of people who are just like me and who I trust absolutely. And I think we've really got very little understanding of that now. Mm. When you were talking about that, that lack of understanding on, to use the term, the home front, it, you could have almost been speaking in 1916, 1917, because some of the soldiers in the First World War felt that when they got back to Britain, that no one had any understanding of what they were going through. One of the problems about leaving the First World War, and soldiers wrote about it a lot in, in letters and diaries, they wanted to get back home on leave. They wanted to see the people that they loved. They wanted to get away from the Western Front, have a bath or a shirt that wasn't lousy, to have too much beer to drink. And they'd come back here, and they'd suddenly discover that no one really understood. Um, here I am doing this interview in Oxford, and there's a very good uh, 
personal account of a young officer walking through Oxford, here in Oxford, in the middle of the war in civilian clothes. Now, actually, he shouldn't have been in civilian clothes because you had to wear uniform on leave, although most people didn't. And someone came up to him and said, well, young man, shouldn't you be in France? And, and he writes in his memoir, he says, actually, I still was, but I didn't look it. Mm. That people came over here and they often found a, a huge sense of sadness that they couldn't pick up the old life. That, that they felt guilty about being away. And they were bonded onto the people they'd left behind more powerfully than they were bonded onto the people here. And of course they wanted drink, of course they wanted sex, of course they wanted to see the people that they loved. But it was never the same. And of course there were things they couldn't share. I mean, I, I think that when, when someone asked them, what's it like? What do you say? How do you tell the person you love most in the world that you've seen your best friend's entrails glistening on the barbed wire, that you've brushed another man's brains out of your tunic. How do you do that? And of course, the truth is that you don't. That there are some things that you simply can't communicate, so don't try. And, and inevitably, there's going to be, in that relationship, the elephant in the drawing room, something in the relationship which is obvious, but, but never referred to and never defined. I suppose one of the differences that you because of today being the fifth anniversary of the Iraq war is that even when the soldiers came back from the First World War they were treated with some respect but we are hearing stories now of, of our returning soldiers not being treated with respect by the general public almost as if they're antagonistic towards what they're going through out there. I, I think it's, it's generally true that we as a society are not good at dealing with veterans. I, I think we were not good about it in the First World War. A lot of people, and very difficult, isn't it? If you, uh, uh, having buried myself in letters and diaries, I would say that if you'd asked people on the 11th of November 1918 what they made of the war, they'd have said it was ghastly, I've lost lots of good mates, but it needed doing. Mm -hmm. And it, it needed doing, I've done my bit in it. What I now want is a job. What I now want is what Mr. Lloyd George promised me, that is a land fit for areas to live in. And, and I think what went to the very heart of the First World War experience was the way that veterans were treated when they got back. That there were no jobs. The, the, the world hadn't really changed. This was a country, and again it's another quote, run by hard-faced men who'd done well out of the war. And a lot of people who write, wrote bitterly about the First World War wrote bitterly about it, not necessarily while it was going on. They wrote bitterly in the 20s and 30s. They wrote about an experience which they then felt had been pointless. Now, I, I think we don't treat returning veterans well now. They come back inevitably with a burden of, of grief and suffering and responsibility on their shoulders. And... I, I think we have little idea what it's been like for them. We don't understand how hard it's going to be for them to get back into, into civilian society. And because we are, at the very least, suspicious about the two wars, about Iraq and Afghanistan, some of us, happily not all, find it very easy to let our suspicion about the war colour our view about the people who are fighting it. Now, actually... They didn't make the war. Soldiers don't make wars. Soldiers in a democratic society do what their government tells them to do. And that's what these guys are doing. As you see, we have a quibble about the war. Um, 
the soldiers are the wrong people to take it out on. If we have a quibble, the quibble should be with the government who sent them there. And I, 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 I do get irritated when we have a rush to judgment on young men who in the heat and terror of an Iraqi afternoon <coughs> have done something wrong. Doesn't mean that I approve of war crimes. <coughs> Doesn't mean that I don't want to preserve a high level of legal control. But we, we exercise a high level of legal control over people who are fighting the war. Um, but it seems to me we are far less eager to examine the reasons for us being there in the first place. So, so we're, we're pretty good at, at, um, at dealing with more easy targets than we are at saying, you know, how have we as a society got ourselves into this situation where we seem to be doing something and, and hey, I'm a political centrist, I've got no extreme view, but we seem to be doing something which society doesn't approve of. And I would say as a historian that you can't do that. That you can't fight a, a substantial war for any length of time without having broad popular support. And if you do, you will, you will lose. Um, that, that one of your tasks as government must be to, to sustain your armed forces in theatre with men and equipment, but to sustain them with popular support too. And you ought to recognise very early on that if you can't produce that popular support, maybe you ought not to fight the war. That's, that's a very interesting point. And can, returning to the First World War in, in particular, um, one of the things which um, I know you do is, is, is take, uh, perform battlefield tours um, which you've commented are very very popular and are becoming increasingly popular. And do you see that as um, a sign of the fact that the First World War is in almost increasing in popularity in the, in the present day consciousness? People are going back to that war constantly and getting more and more interested in it and trying to find out more about it. I, I'm surprised how popular the First World War is. I always tended to work on the theory that it would, like the men who fought it, fade away. But, but actually it hasn't. And I spend a lot of my working year um, taking people on battlefield tours. And there's an increasing interest in it. And I think the most striking characteristic about that is that people want to find out more about a grandfather or great uncle. There's a real interest in trying to find out more about the history of one's family, and which goes beyond the commonplace. And people don't simply want to find a grave. And the War Graves Commission has a wonderful computerized search function. So if you know who you're looking for, um, you can easily find them. But people now, once upon a time, they, they want to find Great Uncle Edgar's grave. But now they want to find out where he was killed, how he was killed, how he got there, how would he have eaten, um, got promoted, gone on leave. They, they want to know more about the the social circumstances of his life. And I think this is, this is something which I find actually very healthy. I, th I think people want to know more, not necessarily about arrows on maps, nothing wrong with that, but they want to know more about the social history of the war. Um, and it, and, it, and it, I think it's gone beyond battlefield tours, which is sort of mawkish cemetery crawls, which is very easy to do. And I think it's gone more now to battlefield tours, which actually do try... Um, to try to explain in as much as you ever can what it was like and what people went through. 
So do you think we've almost extended the act of remembrance now, whereas before it was remembering the dead um, and the casualties, but now it's remembrance is moving into trying to understand what they went through? I think we've got much better at remembrance. I, I think remembrance is a, is, a, is, a, is a very complicated business, and, uh, and sometimes we remember for political reasons. Uh, and I, I worry uh, about the way that I think we over-memorialise the Western Front by putting on it such a great weight of monuments that sometimes I think its fabric is almost in danger of collapsing beneath the weight of the brick and ashlar that we pile upon it. And sometimes I think we do that for political reasons because we want to make a particular political point. So in a sense, what we're, what the points that we're making are not about them at all, they are, they're about us. And that's what some memorials do. But I think at the other extreme, I think we're very properly remembering beyond the 11th of November. We're taking remembrance out of this dark season of poppies and shorter night and shorter days and longer nights, and looking at it more broadly, and that that I applaud. I, I, I you know, I, I never know. I never know where I am with with God or with an afterlife. Um, I try never to say anything or to write anything that I couldn't explain to people who were there at the time. Now, maybe that's a an unnecessary and pathetic worry. But I do think if you're a historian, you do have a, a responsibility not simply to, to, to yourself and to the people that you write for, to the people whom you talk on television, but you do have a responsibility to the people about whom you're writing. Uh, and I often think, when I'm standing in another silent cities, confronted by that crushing weight of Portland Stone with names on it, I often think that they, you know, these men deserve not to be ghettoized on a single day. This isn't just about one day in a year where we stick our poppies in our lapels and go along and look po-faced. Um, I, I remember them on bright summer days. I remember them when I'm enjoying a glass of port after lunch on Christmas Day, as many of them would. I remember, I mourn, I grieve, but I applaud, and I do it every day of my life. The, the, the November the 11th cer ceremony obviously is becoming even, it seems to be even more important in Britain now and if you go back to the 70s it was almost like there was an embarrassment about this, this event but even so I, my perception is people still think back to the Western Front on November 11th obviously the date is symbolic for that war but there's less of a memory about the Second World War unless it's something like nine, after 1939, 50 years on or the Battle of Britain or something like that do you believe that to be true, that November 11 still goes back to that first war? Well, I, th I think it probably does go back to the first war. I think we do remember on November 11, in particular, the First World War. Um, I don't think we should, actually. I think, I think that um, I think we should remember just as much the last British soldier killed, it may be yesterday or the day before, by a sniper's bullet or by an improvised explosive device in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, what we're doing is we're remembering anybody who's died for their country. And, and I think we, we should remember them and not get fixated by the na nature of any particular war. I mean, people like you and I have no real choice if we are in, in a country which adopts conscription, let's say, in the world wars, as to whether we go or not. I mean, it's, 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 it's something where there are going to be huge social media pressures that make us go. Mm. And, and I, I do feel that my generation 
You know, I, I chose to get myself involved in the military, and it's something I have no regrets about. But it was my decision. Mm. Um, and there are quite a lot of people across history. You know, the British Army put nearly six million men through its ranks in the First World War. And ma- many of them, half of them were volunteers and half of them were conscripts. These people had no choice. Uh, and I think we should commemorate everybody who's worn their country's uniform or risked their life mm-hmm. under whatever circumstances. And I, I extend that act of remembrance right up to include people who made up last week. Mm. I think where I'm trying to head with this is, is where you opened you were talking about your personal experience of going to the Menengate when you were, you were a young man um, and the tragedy and the pity and the scale of that conflict which I think is not unique that's probably what everyone feels and that when we were talking about Iraq it's almost the first world war colours British perception of warfare I think across the century and probably will do for maybe another hundred years I think first of all colours our perception of war and our perception of ourselves. Uh, I, I do think there is something very British about that we remember the way that we remember the First World War. We're inclined to remember the the worst bits, not the best bits. Um, you know, book, there are endless books on the Solomon Passchendaele. Relatively few book, books on the last hundred days, which, you know, like it or not, was a victorious advance, pushing the Germans right back to Mons in Belgium, where France the war had started. And these were not. Germans who are running away. The Germans, by and large, don't run away. It's something they don't do. These are sturdy machine-gun rearguards doing awful damage. And we don't like to remember that because it was, it was successful. We do, we do get drawn. We, are, we, are, we have a, a fascination, I think, with the charge of the Light Brigade syndrome, with, with gallant but fruitless endeavours. And I think we've, we've got this image of the First World War. I think here is where the influence of, of poets and first world literature has not been helpful mm. and I speak as a historian touched as I am by the war's poetry I, st- I still think that, that we, we do remember it in terms of, of waste and futility we remember it in terms of incompetence I, I, I once hoped that by the time I hung up my boots as a historian by the time I put my, put my computer away and closed it down forever we'd have come to some sense of balance about the war in history. I don't think it ever will. And, and we still bounce back with the donkeys theory, that these were lions led by donkeys. And we often lose any sense of complexity. And because we like to believe that the First World War was lions led by donkeys, we then, in subsequent conflicts, are anxious to find silly generals and brave soldiers and dishonest politicians. In other words, the war helps create a sort of list of dramatis personae who are usable for all future conflicts. And I simply don't think it was like that. I think, I think that's what we do with it, but I don't actually think the people who lived in it that it was anything like that simple. Mm. No, well, that's extremely interesting, particularly with bringing up the poetry, because that is obviously the focus of this project. And I think it is a common complaint or observation by historians that the poetry has distorted our view of that war and in particular certain poets such as Siegfried Sassoon, possibly Wilfred Owen, um, focusing on what people see as the negative aspects that they were pointing to during the conflict, um, which distorts our view of the war and hides what the mass feeling was in terms of the the average Tommy. I'm hugely ambivalent about First World War poetry and First World War literature. Now, in part... I am 
shaped by it. In part, I enjoy reading it. In part, when I'm thinking of a chapter heading, as we literary types do, very often I'm going to get a chapter heading that comes from Wilfred Amos Secret Sassoon. So, so uh, of course, how can it not have marked me? Um, and, of course, it's helped shape my view about the war. And yet, on the other hand, and for a historian, that's quite a substantial other hand, I, I do feel that there is a, a, a huge quantity of material that was written in the war. Uh, and I think of places like the, the Little Archive in, in Leeds and the Department of Documents at the Imperial War Museum, letters and diaries written by people who wouldn't necessarily have thought of writing a word of poetry in their life, who, who simply wouldn't have regarded poets as speaking for them. And what I wouldn't say is, don't read poetry. Um, I wouldn't say, don't read Goodbye to All That, and don't read that wonderful Siegfried Sassoon trilogy, because it is wonderful. But I, but I would say, remember that it's only one voice. Uh, and what I would challenge is within the context of the war, the degree to which it can be genuinely seen as universal. Yeah. And what it often does, I mean, if, if you're in my position, you, you, I, I, I start teaching the First World War to people who've already done it as literature. And it's almost like trying to teach early 19th century England to people who've just read Jane Austen. So, so people have a particular view of it. And for example, if I was to say, it was far more dangerous to be a general in the First World War than in the Second. We lost more divisional commanders, more major generals at the Battle of Luce in 1915 than we did in the whole of the Second World War. People raise eyebrow and they say politely but disbelievingly, I hear what you say, or well, that's hard to believe. But actually it's true. And if you were to say, well, how can this be? They say, well, have you not read that wonderful poem, The General? Good morning, good morning, the general said. And of course I have, and of course I'm moved and influenced by it. But actually, it, it's not a universal truth. Um, I think it's true in the particular, but it's not universal. That there were lots of generals who could have stayed alive, but didn't. And it, it, it doesn't mean that I like them, it doesn't mean that they were always competent, but there were generals who got killed when they... Uh, could easily have chosen not to. There were generals who won Victoria Crosses uh, under circumstances when preserving their own lives might have been far more sensible. What, what happens, you see, is that we, we go off the outside edge of, of a piece of poetry. We, we are so struck by the way in which some of the war's poets do seem to encapsulate the human condition that, that we, we don't ask ourselves the important question how many people are they speaking for? To what extent is Wilfred Owen's view as a young officer representative of that of the men in the same dugout? A wonderful, one of his last letters home, that wonderful description about being in a, in a smoky dugout with a, with a sleeping corporal. How many of them would have recognised in those wonderful poems that he wrote a universal truth? And I genuinely worry about that. So what I'm not saying is don't read the poetry, don't read the literature. What I am saying is go back and look at other things too. Look at bad poetry. Look at um, trench journals. Look at the way that... Uh, this was a, a generation that often 
wanted to write poetry. I think different generations have different ways of expressing themselves. This was a generation that often wrote not terribly good poetry. Um, it was only a blooming heavy, only a battery horse, um, but if there's an heavy Evan forces, Albert will not be lost. I mean, you've got to do it with that sort of Cockney accent, otherwise it doesn't rhyme. And that was, you know, that came from the heart, but that's, you know, written by some horny-handed son of toil, not by a middle-class young gentleman serving in the infantry. Mm. And, and it's, you know, we need to look at the whole, the whole fabric of what people wrote and what they thought was important and what they thought about the war, not simply if it's poetry and literature. Mm. I suppose the, to play devil's advocate, you could say the average person, that was an awful term to use, um, that is there such a thing as an average person, but the average soldier had felt conditioned not to express what they possibly truly felt or when they came home couldn't talk to people whereas the poet some people might say can go right to the core and ex- and that's what makes poetry good because it does express what perhaps everyone's feeling or maybe don't know they're feeling that I wouldn't deny for a moment that that, that good poetry even bad poetry can often express incredibly well emotion in a way that maybe nothing else can. Um, I don't take the view that this was a generation, though, that was constrained about what it said. I think that there were lots of people at the time who wrote letters, who wrote diaries, who wrote um, prose accounts of what they were doing, and they were remarkably... I mean, a lot of soldiers who left school at 14 wrote remarkably well. and I'm constantly struck by the way in which this was a literate generation. Uh, and again, if you wanted to draw comparisons between then and now, I would say it's remarkable how literate this generation was, given that most of it had left school at 14. And I do seriously wonder how many of today's school leading generation could write with such fluency. Uh, and I think that maybe that's yet another thing that we've lost. But, but I, I think that if, if you were to read something like... Um, James Dunn's The War the Infantry Knew and Dunn was the regimental medical officer of 2nd Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers Glasgow doctor he'd served as a private soldier in the Boer War and won a Distinguished Conduct Medal second highest decoration that he could have got um, then qualified as a doctor and spent the whole of the war on the western front of the doctor and produced a regimental account called The War the Infantry Knew which is a compendium of opinion taken from 2nd World War Fusiliers and you couldn't say that James Dunn, um, Distinguished Service Order, Distinguished Conduct Medal, Military Cross, hadn't seen the war full on. He had. I mean, Dunn had seen more of the war and its suffering than almost anybody else we could think of. And yet, if you were to read The War the Infantry knew, it wouldn't give you the view that a First World War poet might. Now, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't read the poet. What I am saying is that you should read James Dunn as well. Mm. And that he, what he's done is taken opinion from within the Royal Fusiliers. He's got people to write, including um, some of the battalion's poets, because both Graves and Sassoon served with him. Um, but but it's, a, I think, a, a necessary counterbalance to what some of the poetry tells you. So, so I, I, I welcome the broadening of the way that we look at the war, which is why I think Vivian Noakes' book on 
poor First World War poetry was very important because we shouldn't just judge poets by the relatively um, narrow list of quote great poets you know, and I, I would say they were unquestionably great. We should look at, at other people. We should look at other people who, who, who wrote doggerel, who remembered things in... You know, look at the impact of the music hall, the music hall through the concert party. And the concert party was hugely important in the British Army of the First World War, often dressed as pierrots, very often with some quite successful female impersonation, with Private Plumstead as probably the most successful female impersonator on the whole of the Western Front. People said that Plumstead got the neck and shoulders right. Now, you know, this is a family show, so I'm not, we don't want to go too far in that direction. But, but, but people liked the music hall, and they liked the music hall because the music hall reminded them of what peacetime had been like. The music hall was a thing which could poke fun of authority. Um, it, it's, it's certainly um, downstairs looking up. It, it's, it pokes fun of authority, uh, it's slightly risque, and, and, and that's what, what Mr. Atkins was kind of, you know, Mr. Atkins was used to the Hackney Empire, so he was more used, I would say, to the Hackney Empire than he was to iambic pentameters. And uh, I wish we spent more time looking at scripts for concert parties, b- because they're actually important, they're not ephemera which deserves to be kept at the bottom of a box, they, they, they show us what soldiers liked, what, what they thought, what they laughed at, what they sung. And that's just as important as the wonderful poems that poets wrote. Mm. I suppose you could... Your point about broadening the canon of poetry is very important because you get the different voices. Um, and although Sassoon is that pinnacle that angry outburst in 1916-1917 you could look at Grenfell which captures the spirit of battle quite early on, Brooke which captures the sort of spirit of enlisting um, Owen which captures the pity of, of being a soldier in those very difficult circumstances do you feel that what happened after the war in the 30s and, and even in the 60s added to that um, colouring of our view of that war when we have things like oh what a lovely war coming out in the 60s and things like that I, I think that there, the historiography of the war, the way that we write about the war um, has hugely influenced the way that we think about it I, and I think there have been two surges there was a sort of late 20s early 30s surge and uh, the Sassoon trilogy of which I'm so fond is actually a mid 30s book now, it may look as if it was written, but actually it is a mid-30s book, and it's written by an extremely accomplished author. It is emotion recollected in tranquility. Now, a lot of people at that time, looking at the way the world was, and they're looking at the First World War now through the prism of unemployment, the depression, uh, and the rise of fascism, and, and it's clear a war which, war which didn't work, and Versailles is a piece that had failed. So, of course, they tended to see the past through the prism of the present as we might. What then happened in the 1960s, and I was, you know, I was at university in the 1960s, for goodness sake. There, there we were, protesting about the Vietnam War. And what we tended to do was to see the First World War as part of what we were then engaged against. Oh, Vietnam is a bad idea, therefore the First World War was bad too, that they are both monstrous deceptions practiced by the boss class 
upon the honest working man. And we sent up the First World War. We sent it up with, um, oh, with a lovely war. Um, we produced some incredible literature. And I, I, in many respects, I admired the late Alan Clark, who brought a little bit of excitement, much needed excitement, goodness knows, into British politics. But his book, his book The Donkeys, is, is a mendacious book. It, its very title is dishonest. There's no, absolutely no evidence that German generals ever used don't we know their lines led by donkeys but he sold them the first one no, no evidence at all I mean, the, the, it, the, it's a stitch up um, it, it's a stitch up which, which is nerved by passion in Alan Clark's case he, you know, he believed that the first world was a gigantic conspiracy it was a sort of huge concentration camp to which we ourselves had sent so many people and, and he didn't I think let honesty or objectivity get in his way so, so we produced a whole lot of books which were, which I think, stitch-ups. Mm. They, they weren't interested in any sense of objectivity. They were interested in telling people what they wanted to hear. And what they wanted to hear was that generals were buffoons and dunces and the whole thing was uh, a complete cock-up uh, and everybody was abjectly miserable and it was a real disaster. And that, that was a view, if you take Charles Carrington, I think... Quite an important literary figure, who is Charles Edmonds, wrote a very good book called The Subaltern's War, and then wrote another book called Soldier from the Walls Returning. And Carrington, to the end of his long life, said, you know, my war, my war, I fought in it. I got a military cross at Passchendaele, he'd say, jabbing a thumb towards a, towards a tweed lapel. I got a military cross at Passchendaele. This was my war, for God's sake. And it's been hijacked. It's been hijacked by people who weren't there who now proceed to tell me the way it wasn't. Uh, and so I think that the, the 30s and the 60s had a profound effect on the way that we, we, we write about the war. And I think that in some respects, some historians have overcorrected. I mean, having crashed into the fence on one side of the track, they've swung the wheel so hard that they've probably moted into the fence on the other side. And, and maybe John, John Terrain, who in many respects I admired, went too far in his defence of Hague. But you can see what happened, because people got so offended by this um, very black and white view of the war that they tried to put some much-needed colour into it and veered too far the other way. I think that the hard thing is pursuing a middle course. I mean, for someone like me, um, I, I, I often feel that I'm crouched in a shell hole in no man's land here and shells fired by both sides are whistling over my head and occasionally bursting dangerously close I often feel that I've got no I've got fewer natural allies and my life would be a great deal easier if I decided either to write a donkey's book or a Hague was great book and in in truth I don't believe that either extreme is right I think the truth does lie as historical truth so often does somewhere in the middle I think no man's land is always going to be the right place for me but it doesn't mean that I I don't resent the dribble of water running down my collar it's very interesting what you said about it being used almost as a political football in in the 60s and, and in the 30s um, and that still goes on to a certain degree I suppose in the perhaps the the continued remembrance of certain events about the war being used by certain nations or political parties to perpetuate some idea or some ideal of theirs well I, I think the, 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 the war the war is a, the war, this is a shocking war this is a 
Shocking, shocking war, make no mistake. But what we have tended to do with it is to, to pull out of its wreckage things that we need to give us particular comfort. Um, the Australians, for example, identify their own growing nationalism at the period with the experience of Gallipoli. So for them, Gallipoli is an Australian battle. Uh, Gallipoli is a battle which might have been won had it not been for the incompetence of the Brits. And if you go to Gallipoli on Anzac Day and, and stand there on Anzac Cove at first light in the morning, there are now more young Australians and New Zealanders there every year than there were in 1915. And in a, sense, in a similar sort of way, the Canadians have done the same with, with Vimy Ridge. Um, that was the first time that the Canadian Corps, four divisions side by side, had won a victory on this scale. And I think that the war does become uh, a, a bag into which we reach to seize things that we're particularly interested in. On a smaller scale, the um, Irish Peace Park on Messine Ridge is making, I think, a very good point that Irishmen from both sides of Ireland's cultural divide fought bravely and we ought to remember those from the south who fought in British uniform. Uh, there's a new Scots memorial on the field of Passchendaele that, that, that recognises the Scottish sacrifice. But, but in a sense, these are making points which are as much about contemporary politics mm. as they are about history. Um, and we sometimes do it in terms of our view of the, the way the army's leadership worked. Uh, now, I, I personally would have left the issue of soldiers who were shot by firing squad where it was. I am as I was upset about people who we shot as I am by people who the Germans shot. And when I get my heels together on Remembrance Day each year, I think of those often frightened young men who faced a firing squad. Uh, but I don't think we do anything useful by giving a mass pardon. I, don't, I simply don't think you can alter history that way. And if we're going to give a mass pardon to people shot in the First World War, well, what about people who were shot in the Boer War? Um, what about Admiral Bing, who was shot probably unfairly for the loss of Minorca? Now, you know, we might say that we didn't shoot people for cowardice and desertion in the Boer War. We certainly executed some Australians um, for, for war crimes. I think it's very difficult to... It's very difficult once you've started to stop. I don't think we can change the past by things that we do. What I would say is, the way, is that what the campaign to get a pardon for those who were shot, and in so many respects, my heart is right behind the campaign. What I do think that does is says a huge amount about us, about us, about the way that we now are. Mm. Um, I think it says nothing at all about the First World War um, if I was to say well actually the majority of them were justly condemned by the law as it then stood I know that the weight of opinion would be against me I, I know that, that you know, most people think that we were quite right to do it and most people feel that it was doubly shocking that these people were not simply killed in the war but killed by us I, I, I think that what we've done over that is we've simply thrown whitewash over a series of complexities which, which we haven't begun to comprehend and it tells us a lot about the way that we now look at war. Yeah. And again, 
the shot at dawn, as you said, tells us about our, ourselves, but it was also, it comes out of that political surge in the 60s with films like Paths of Glory and King and Country, which, you know, said, oh, well, every, everyone who was shot, you know, clearly was innocent, you know. So, it, again, it's reflecting on us and, and our political views at the time. I, I think, I mean, I, I, as it happens, I, I think that um, Kubrick's Paths of Glory is a fine film. I think it's, it's one of the the best films made about the First World War and the, that, that, that sort of view of infantry battle where he, he'd actually got German policemen doing, playing French infantrymen they were people who'd got some military training so they, they, they knew how to behave cohesively and he'd given them all the dying area in which they were, each individual knew roughly where he was to die but hadn't overscripted it you do have a you know, very, very great sense of that, of that terrible fighting in the beginning, the beginning of 1917 I think it was a a fine film, and I loved King and Country as well. They both had a substantial impact on me. But if you if you read the documents, which you now can, because the documents are available in the National Archive, read um, Catherine Corns and John Hughes Wilson's book, uh, Blindfold and Alone, uh, you, you will get a view which is hugely more complicated. Uh, none of this means that I like it, that I approve of it, or that I myself would have applauded it had I been there at the time. It does mean, though, that we ought not to look at it in the... They were all um, brave young men who had a single lapse and were then shot by a harsh system. Uh, Some of these men were serial deserters. And, And if you look at what their mates thought about it at the time, their mates, in some verifiable cases, had no sympathy because as far as their mates were concerned, these were people who were making everybody's life worse by shirking. Now, they thought that at the time. They might not necessarily have thought that in the 1920s or 1930s. So it is a shocking business. Hard cases make bad law. It's a shocking business. It doesn't get the best out of any of us. And it appalls me, but I would still have left it alone. Just wanted to finish by bringing you back to the present, if I can, because you're probably the only person we'll ever talk to who's been to Iraq and Afghanistan and has served in the military. Um, regardless of our views of the of the poetry of the First World War, it was it was a a way of representing a viewpoint from the soldiers about what they were experiencing. The soldiers nowadays serving in the British Army, I assume, don't write much poetry, but they try and capture their views and their opinions of what's happening in a different way. Is that, is that right? I, I've had the, the privilege of seeing British soldiers on active service in the Balkans and in, and in Iraq. You know, all, all I am is that dreadful, untranslatable phrase, a remph. I'm the guy who appears with a clean uniform and I cower in the back of an armoured vehicle. So they are taking the risks and I'm not, but at least I have been there. Um, what's very striking is the way in which the young now remember. What they now do is they, um, they, they make CDs of what they're doing. Um, many of them have bought quite sophisticated filming and editing equipment. And, and for them, the event only has reality if there's a moving image of it. Uh, I think, you know, perhaps for some generations it was an image in engraven stone. For others, maybe it was poetry. I think what the boys and girls now like is a is a moving image, and and they are very good at them. And, and you've got 
uh, images with heavy metal in the background, and it's the way they commemorate their friends. So if you if, if you look at an individual's CD uh, made in Iraq, if you'd lost a friend, one of the things you'd expect to find is an image of the friend's coffin being loaded onto an aircraft at Basra Airport with due solemnity to be flown back to England. In, 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 it's rather than a name on a memorial, what they've now got is, a, is an image. And they, they do them very well, and they take them very seriously. And there are several layers at which they operate. I mean, a, a company, and a company is about 100 men. Um, there might well be a company account where you, you know, when you turn up as a visitor, they'll say, have you seen the company film? And you'll then get a, a sort of quasi-official middle of the chain of command piece describing uh, sea companies to an armara. And there you'll have it. Now, you'll have less official versions going all the way down to individual pilots. And, and some of them will do their own pieces to camera. Uh, and, 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 you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to be the newsreel that maybe they never saw. Uh, and one could almost go further and say that, that actually, in a sense, the war has no reality unless it's on the television. And this, this gives some reality to their own experience. And maybe 90 years ago they'd have written a poem about it. Uh, and now they remember it this way. I mean, I feel very strongly that different generations remember things in, in different ways, and they have different ways of expressing themselves. And, and I, don't, I don't think there's a universality to needing to do it in poetry. I have been as struck, as moved to tears, by some clips shot by private soldiers in a sweaty barracks in Iraq, as I have by first of all the poems. I mean, a lot of this stuff I think is very good, and it comes straight from the heart, and it's it's... It's, again, downstairs looking up. This isn't a sort of heavily edited, establishment-led production. It, it's the result of the burgeoning of the way that images can now be collected collected, and distributed in all sorts of ways. So I, th I think it'll lead to a seeing war in a completely different way. And maybe historians... I mean, by then I will have hung up the old typewriter, but I think it'll mean that historians in 50 years' time will find it harder to get the sort of evidence that I've been using because much of it will be images, it'll be emails, it will in a sense be more ephemeral. Mm -hmm. And the tone of these, um, I use the term video diaries which is not fair to them, are they mainly factual, they're, they're trying to be journalists to present what they're seeing around them or are they ever satirical, condemning of the war, the conflict, the leaders that got them there, not the military leaders, the political leaders? Well. I would say this, wouldn't I? Remember that, that my what I get shown is coloured by the fact that when I was being colonel of my regiment, I was dressed as a brigadier, and therefore I was part of the establishment. And therefore it's, it's entirely proper for you to wonder whether um, Smudge, Knacker and Donk in the back of a warrior are going to be as honest with me as they might be one of their own mates. Now, I, actually, I, I always hoped they would be, but I can't, I can't be sure. But, but I mean, it, it, it does seem to me that while people are doing it in Iraq, they're busy. I mean, these are people who, by and large, wanted to be there. They wanted to be professional soldiers, and what professional soldiers want to do is to exercise their profession. I also think there is a basic blokey thing in the world of testosterone and fag ash about people wanting to know what it's like 
I think people want to know whether they can do it. And if we're being really arty about this, I would say that maybe the the sergeant in training is a bit like the midwife, that that both are repositories of ancient gender-specific knowledge. You know, what's it going to be like, Sarge? Will I cope? Okay, will I do it? Will it hurt? And 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 and, and I think that that a lot of the young do do want to do it, and they are busy. I mean, they're working, they're kipping, they're scoffing, they're getting on, they're sustained by the bonds of mateship. I don't think that they, at the time, reflect on the detail of what's happening that much. I think they get on and do it. And, and I think maybe, maybe afterwards they reflect. And in a sense, this might form part of a circular argument. I think that if we you know, initially in the Iraq war, people said, gosh, isn't it amazing how few psychiatric casualties there are? I think the time to look for psychiatric casualties is not during the conflict itself, and it's afterwards. I think it's afterwards where people do have the ability to reflect on what they've seen and done, and to try to put their experience in context. And the risk of fighting a war which doesn't have a high level of popular support, the risk of fighting a war whose war aims might not seem to be achieved is that you do then produce people who in retrospect think about the war and they do so precisely in the way that first world war soldiers thought in the 1920s and 30s so I think that we, we might easily get a generation who look back at something which they didn't regret at the time because they had their mates and you know I've got to tell you mates are the single most important thing you cannot see British soldiers in operation these days without being struck by that enormous sense of people being valued and valuable because of their, the reflection that they get of their own status in the eyes of others. And that's a great quality. And, and maybe one of the tragedies of all this is that people never experience it outside conflict. But, but of course, the rest of your life is lonely by comparison. I can now understand why... When I was growing up, I had lots of people who, call, who, who I called uncle, and who weren't really my uncles at all. They were my dad's friends from the past, and they, like him, had lived through the Second World War, and they weren't going to talk to me about it. They, but they needed to talk to one another, and, and of course, in the 1940s, that was relatively easy. I think one of the problems confronting the young now is that with an army of a regular army of 100,000 and a territorial army of of under 40,000, finding someone who knows what you're talking about is difficult. And, and it's precisely the same paradox that you had for the First World War. Often the people that you love most won't understand a word of it. And, and you'll find it very hard to communicate with them. So I, I think we should expect somewhere down the pike that more people will, who did what they had to do and did it well and did it sustained by their mates will look back at that and ask themselves, maybe not now, maybe in five years, maybe in ten years, why did I do it? Was it worth it? Was it in particular worth the life or health of those admirable friends who I lost? Mm. And, and that, I think, is when people will remember it with that, that edge that so much of the writing of the 30s brings with it. Well, that's been fascinating. I mean, bringing two wars either end of a 100-year span, I suppose, together. And, um, I mean, without putting it 
too simplistically, the Iraq War is kind of your war. You've you've been there as a military personnel, but you come back to the First World War in your academic work. Do you will you ever escape the First World War? Is that something that's going to haunt you going back to when you were a young man standing under the Menin Gate? I don't think I'll ever get away from the First World War. Um, I I'm surprised to find myself writing another book about it. I'm even more surprised to find myself considering writing another book, sort of next book, but one after it. And I don't know why that is. I, I think I would say probably as a this very personal point to make. I think I'm as as much, maybe more, a heart historian than I am a head historian. Yeah, I, I did a perfectly respectable PhD and all the rest of it, which you need to do to get on these days. But, but actually, I, I'm always more interested in what I feel about things than I am in what I think about them. I'm always at least as much interested in the way that I I feel a period is talking to me than I am in in the footnotes I might use. That that probably sounds like something that's going to get me into Seward's corner, but but I, I, I am this... I've only ever wanted to be a historian, and I, I and I love what I do, um, and I never see a firm division between words in books, words on the small screen, or words in the lecture theatre. And I always follow my heart, and my heart is an unreliable guide, and I have a dreadful feeling it'll lead me back to the First World War, although I wish it bloody wouldn't.